your hosts have earned a reputation as fierce and effective advocates inside and outside of the courtroom. Both partners are experienced trial attorneys who have been board certified in family law by the Texas Board of Legal Specialization. All right. Well, welcome back to For Better, Worse, or Divorce. I'm Jake Gilbreth here with Brian Walters. And as part of our series, today we're going to be talking about family law cases involving children with special needs and how we address some of the most frequently asked questions for families that have that situation when going through a divorce or a custody case. So I guess let's start with it. Just sort of talking about kind of the most common stuff that we see in family law cases. Now, every single family is different, right? And even if you see a diagnosis that maybe you have more experience with than another or you've seen more in your career, every single child is different. We'll just slap labels on kids and that tells us exactly how they're going to be. But it does give some direction. And, you know, we see a lot of cases, you know, with kids that are on the autism spectrum. We see, you know, a lot of kids with sort of learning differences like dyslexia, ADHD, you know, speech delays or cognitive delays. Sometimes you see some of the behavioral diagnoses with kids that are bipolar or ODD. They have anxiety. Sometimes they're more physical, you know, ranging from, you know, a child has asthma or food allergies all the way till you, you know, you have a child that may have more severe physical disabilities. Every single family is different, but it is an issue, you know, as far as if you have a family with a child that has special needs, then it is something that's going to have to be taken into consideration by the parents when they're trying to work things out and ultimately by the judge that the judge has to decide. So, Brian, sort of first and foremost, you know, you have somebody come into your office and, you know, they have a child or multiple children that have a, a special needs. Kind of what's the first thing you're sort of trying to understand from the client when they come in and, and talk to you about that situation? I mean, I guess the first question is, is, is there conflict, right? I mean, the classic example of where there probably isn't conflict is a child has a, you know, a heart defect. And, you know, the, they've got a pediatric cardiologist that says this child needs, you know, surgery to correct a valve defect in their heart, get a second opinion, they say exactly the same thing. There's, you know, there's probably not a conflict at that point, right? So it's, it's really, is there conflict? And if so, what is it about? And then, you know, do we have a, you know, what is our, do we have a legally tenable case to, to argue it? Um, Because there's certain arguments that are not going to make it in a courtroom and some that are depending on how the judges or juries tend to see things in your particular jurisdiction. So it's kind of those three things that I look at and want to talk about first. Yeah, and we've seen it, unfortunately. I mean, you would think this stuff would be straightforward. Like you said, the doctor says it's this. What's the dispute? I've seen, yeah, and sometimes I think there is a good faith disagreement about maybe where a child is at with their special need. If you have a child on the autism spectrum, maybe mom thinks the child's a little more severe on the autism spectrum than another And that's, I don't know if understandable is the right word, but that's something that you understand where the conflict comes from, at least, particularly if you have different providers that view it differently. But there's been cases, I know you and I have both litigated, Brian, where it's more on the nose, where in bizarre almost, where one parent says, my child has this special need, and the other parent has says, you know, no, my child does not have that special need. And that could be, and we've seen the extremes on both ways, right? I've seen where kids, uh, one of the first cases I litigated, as an associate with Jim Piper, you know, however many years ago that was, was, you know, the child was really struggled with bipolar. He was 12, I think, at the time and really had a hard time 
and was working really intently with his psychiatrist. Had unfortunately gone inpatient, I think twice, you know, even at that age had gone inpatient and had a psychiatrist that he really was working with. So he had a psychiatrist he really was working with. So this dad, I mean, he was just not involved in the child's treatment in his life, but just decided to roll in kind of after the fact and, and announce to everybody that he didn't agree with the diagnosis. And which, by the way, led to just to tell a quick war story. One of Jim's better deposition questions was, you know, do you disagree with your child's diagnosis? Well, yeah, I disagree with the diagnosis. Okay, what is the diagnosis? And the dad said, I don't know, which led to the appropriate follow-up question was, let me understand this. You disagree with your child's diagnosis, and you don't even know what it is. Dad was like, that's right. But that case had to go to a trial because the dad's position was, I should get custody of this child because he is not bipolar, and I disagree with the psychiatrist. And we had to, unfortunately, have a multi-day trial over that, which turned out to be very successful for our client, but it was a sad situation. On the other extreme, you know, there are situations and they're really sad, but you have it where one parent, you know, slap a label on it or whatever, but you have a parent that is claiming a child has a special needs and it has not been diagnosed or maybe it's not to the extent that they claim it is. And those cases get, we've litigated those cases as well. And again, you know, you don't have to necessarily slap a label on what's going on there, but we've seen those cases. So that goes to your point though, Brian. It's like, why do we start with this? Are the parents on the same page about what the issue is? And then I guess the next discussion is, let's say you are on the same page about the diagnosis. What do you all think about as far as the appropriate treatment? Because that can look differently too, right, Brian? Even if we agree with that the child has this issue, there's not a... Exactly. And there's another option, which is that we have two different diagnoses or different variations on a diagnosis or diagnosis that have changed over time. I dealt with that in a hearing last week, hearing one diagnosis of of where this child was on the autism spectrum by one doctor, and then we have a more, somewhere different on the spectrum by a later physician, and we're not sure if that's because of its later in time and therapy and treatment it helped, or the child had just changed, or because there's a different, anyway, so all those things can occur, and it's the same thing with the question of treatment, right? I mean, it's, you might have two different uh, recommendations of treatment, but let's assume you have the same recommendation or just one recommendation of treatment. And you're right. There's then there's debates about that, and and one person may want to follow the the recommended course of treatment. Um, it's possible that they both want to modify it in some way, um, and rather than one following and one not. So there's all kinds of uh, variations on this, and. I think a lot of what we're assuming here is we're going to just rely on that, you know, that there's one expert that's going to drop out of the sky and fix the problems, but that's not the way it works necessarily for several different types of reasons. But to answer, I think your fundamental question is, yeah, that's just as much of a problem as figuring out, trying to get the parents to agree on what the actual issue is. Yeah. I mean, just think about this in the real world, right? I mean, you could be happily married and raising your child together and you still get multiple opinions from multiple sources, right? I mean, it's, you go to one doctor, they say this, another doctor says that. It's, it's one of the challenges of raising a child with a special needs is you kind of have to turn into medical doctor yourself or psychologist or psychiatrist yourself as a parent with a child with with special needs. And that's a challenge for folks that are together in raising a child in the same household. And it's even more of a challenge when somebody's going through a divorce. Compounded, like we talked about, obviously, if one parent 
is not listening to medical advice. It makes the problem even more difficult. But it's difficult even if the parents are trying to follow medical advice and there's just different messages that they're getting or just different judgment calls that you have to make as a parent. So I guess ultimately that comes back to like in the family court system, kind of what what is it that we can address at the end of the day? And I have clients that talk to me about kids with special needs and going through a divorce or custody situation when you have a child or multiple children with special needs. It always sort of comes back to kind of what does the court order address? And, you know, we say it all the time with families that have special needs or don't. I mean, ultimately, we're talking about conservatorship. We're talking about possession access and we're talking about support, just like any other family. It's just that those decisions and what we do with those three categories may be different or may be tweaked or have to accommodate the child's special needs. So conservatorship, how do we make decision making? You know, issues that come up for kids with special needs on conservatorship, first of all, is educational decisions. You know, folks always think that educational decision is just where the child goes to school, and that is obviously a major educational decision. But there's more than that. Does your child need a 504 plan or IEP plan? And can the parents get on the same page on those accommodations about whether or not the child needs accommodations or individualized education plan or what have you. And, you know, folks have a, if they're true joint managing conservators, they have to agree on stuff. It could cause a situation with one parent doesn't want accommodations and one parent does. And that could be something that, that would have to be litigated. And then, of course, kind of tied to that in a lot of special needs, particularly, again, like autism disorder, autism spectrum disorder, dyslexia, ADHD, stuff like that. Tied to that is how do we make psychological or in some cases psychiatric decisions for a child? Just because people are joint managing conservators doesn't mean that we make joint decisions. A court can allocate which parent makes that decision or how we make those decisions. And that could be life changing for a child. If one parent's put in charge of psychological or psychiatric cares and is not appropriately caring for the child, that can be a life changing decision of who actually makes the decision about psychological or psychiatric care. Uh, because if you are a true joint, if it's truly joint, the parents have to agree for a psychological or psychiatric decision to be made, then there really is just one parent who's the decision maker because it's the parent that says no. And that's something I was taught right off the bat as a young associate. If folks are truly in their court order say you have to agree for something to happen, the parent that says no is the real decision maker because they have veto power. And sometimes that works, and a lot of times that doesn't work. You have to have a decision maker at the end of the day and figure out who's the appropriate decision maker. So, Brian, it sounds like you've litigated that even you know as recently as last week. But what type of arrangements do you see when it comes to – and I guess let's talk about psychiatric and psychological because that's the most common dispute, although education's tied to that. But psychological and psychiatric disputes, if you have parents that can't get on the same page for whatever reason, what do we do to try to resolve that? It's a good point, and I think it's important for folks to realize that a judge is not going to sit up there and make decisions for your child in the sense of, you know, you're going to do this or you're going to do that in almost all cases. What they're going to do, and you certainly don't have the judge on speed dial with, hey, you know, my ex-spouse won't take them to the psychiatrist tomorrow. Can you make them, right? (laughs) Unfortunately, that's not the way it works, or maybe fortunately. Instead, the courts usually are going to pick a dispute resolution mechanism, right? So if there is a dispute, because again, the hope is always that the parents figure it out together, decide what they're going to do within the bounds of the law and do that and they're done. 
But if not, there's got to be a way to dis- to resolve those disputes. And there are not many options. They're, they're either, you know, parent number one gets to decide or parent number two gets to decide is the choice 99% of the time. Now, maybe the court's going to say they need to talk about it or confer or consult together about it. Or maybe there could be, you know, you need to tell them in advance or, you know, and, and they have some type of response they can make. But that's generally what's going to happen. And that's a tricky situation. And the other alternative is to appoint some type of third party as the tiebreaker. But that is pretty rare and is actually questionable to me whether <laughs> whether the court can really even do that or, or or if that's even a good uh, mechanism. So that's usually what you're going to get out of a court of not, yes, you can do this, or yes, this child's got to do this. It's going to be, you know, mom or dad or whoever is going to make these decisions under some kind of mechanism. So Yeah, and the, and the court's going to want to hear from parents, like, what's your plan, right? If I put you in charge, which doctors you're going to listen to, which professionals you're going to listen to, or parent, you know, B, if I put you in charge, what are you going to do? And they're also going to look at who's going to actually try to reach a joint decision with the other parent, if possible. Try. I mean, ultimately, if you have one parent that's not looking out for what's best for the child, then, you know, one parent's going to have to make the decision. The courts do want to see parents try because nobody knows a child better than the parents, you know, of course. They're going to want to see them try to reach an agreement. But, you know, for sometimes for good faith reasons, sometimes for not good faith reasons, sometimes in between, there's decisions that are going to come up that that people will see it differently. And that's hard when married or when together. And it's even more difficult when, when divorced and separated. So a judge, like you said, a judge is going to have to decide. But those are really, those are hard cases. It's important to that you first obviously take them seriously, but also that the lawyer involved has litigated these types of cases before. They know which professionals to call because it's not even necessary that the child's training professionals are going to come in and testify. A lot of times they do. A lot of times they do kicking and screaming. They, you know, who actually wants to come in and get it in between two parents in a dispute. But a lot of times the child's training professionals come in. But sometimes it's a, you know, a third, a neutral professional that's going to come in. I mean, it's not uncommon and we work with these experts, but it's not uncommon for a court to appoint or the parties to agree on, you know, maybe a psychologist or psychiatrist being appointed that hasn't seen the child, but it's going to review records, and talk to the professionals or, you know, have a custody evaluation done or guardian ad litem or an amicus, you know, somebody to gather this information for the court because it is a hard decision for a judge. And ultimately, this is a judge decision. A jury does not decide rights and duties other than the right to determine the primary residence. But psychological and psychiatric decisions, educational decisions, those will always go to a judge. It will always be a judge deciding that unless the parties have agreed to an arbitration. But it will always be a judge deciding that. And and so if you're the judge, it's like, give me all the information I can to make sure I don't mess this up, right? Because the last thing you want to do as a judge is pick one parent and find out that they screwed up treatment and this child's not getting the, the, their needs met. But anyways, point being, a judge a lot of times is looking for an additional layer of professional looking at this. So there's all the information gathered. It's not with a spin on it. And there's a neutral party presenting this to the court. And then again, the lawyers have to know what they're, they're talking about. It you know, drives me crazy whenever I, I watch hearings or I participate in hearings and lawyers are throwing out terms and they're, they're getting it wrong or they haven't educated themselves on what the special needs are or you know, what it actually means. I think you see a lot. 
my personal complaint is you see a lot of that with autism, people not understanding that that's a spectrum, people throwing out kind of out-of-date terminology like Asperger's and stuff like that, and just not really understanding the actual diagnosis and the actual disorder in the spectrum. But you see that, I think, throughout, you know, lawyers not educating themselves on what's going on, not only with this diagnosis, but what's going on individually with this child and what it means. These cases can go south really quickly if you don't educate yourself on it, just like the parents have had to. The parents have had to sort of become mini doctors for their children. And as the lawyers, you kind of have to become, I mean, ultimately, I'm not the professional, but I had to be knowledgeable about this stuff in order to competently talk about it in court and to be able to advise our clients because ultimately these cases, you want them to work out before having to do what you have to do recently, Brian, and go down to the courthouse and fight about it. Well, let's talk about possession schedules. And this kind of relates to a common question I get is what do I do if you know the child needs this treatment and the other parent just won't do it or doesn't take it seriously you know, child's supposed to be on medication, and every single time she goes to dad's house, he throws the medication in the trash. Child's got food allergies, and every single time he goes to mom's house, the peanut butter's out, or they're, they're not taking it seriously, or they're going to restaurants without wiping down the table, or whatever. What do you do? I mean, there's, you, I guess you can have a court order that says don't be an idiot, but those are rarely enforceable or followed, and so what do you do with that, Brian, if you have a parent that's just won't? Yeah, drops the ball every single time they've got the kid. It's a problem. I mean, I was thinking uh, the example that you just gave about the medication that's not given. And it's not you don't know it's not given. Right. If one parent, they're not going to tell you I threw the medication in the trash. And if you have a two year old or five year old or something, they're not going to be able to report back to you accurately about it. And so what do you do? I mean, that may be half the problem is trying to figure out what's happening over it the other house. You hear snippets from your kid or your kid's friends or the other parents or whatever, but you don't really know. And that's a big evidentiary problem, right? If you go in there and say, well, dad's not giving our child the required medication. And the dad says, yeah, I am. (laughs) Guess what? People don't always tell the truth in court, especially family courts. So that's, it's a problem. And so let's use your example. Let's say that there is important meds that the child is not has been prescribed. It's important to the child's health, safety, and welfare. And we, and the court does believe, let's say dad is not giving this child the medication. What do you do? He's already or supposed to do it. I guess the court could say, you better do it. Let's try it again. And, he, and the, the outcome is probably going to be the dad hiding it better, giving him a sugar pill or something if the kid's telling on him. And so the only solution in that case might be dad can't have this child Any period of child has to have the medication every 12 hours. Dad can't have the kid more than 12 hours at a time uh, because we can't trust him to to give the meds. So instead of getting a full weekend, he gets Saturday from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. or something like that. That might be the solution. It's a pretty harsh outcome, maybe, um, in some ways, but that may be the only thing available to the court. Just is what it is. If there's a learning disability, you know, typically the non-custodial parent has Thursday overnights during the school week and Sunday overnights on the school week on, on their weekends. And well, maybe that's not real good for the child to kind of transition. You know, maybe they need to be at sort of the primary parent's home every school night. And that's something that the court does too. So possession schedule certainly could be an issue. I agree. Yeah. And it's a spectrum like all this is, right? It could be this extreme. You know, one end, it's like you said, okay, Thursdays aren't going to be workable because dad or mom just can't you know, don't recognize the learning disability and they can't get it done or what have you. And, you know, on the other extreme, like you said, it's somebody's just 
actually putting the child in danger by not doing medication or not recognizing physical disabilities or nut allergies or what have you. I mean, I've had cases where it is really scary what you see some parents do. And I've had cases where, and again, there's extremes on both ends, right? I've had cases where the special need is, I've had cases where the special need is overblown or frankly even made up by one parent. Uh, Those sad cases, but I've seen that. So don't think that that's not out there. But I've seen the other extreme where you have a parent that will put a child in danger because they hate their ex so much. And the ex believes in the diagnosis, listens to the doctors, and a parent is so upset with their ex-spouse or ex-partner that they can't get past that. And so we see these families all the time, right? The mom says the sky is blue, and so dad says the sky is burnt orange or vice versa. They just can't agree on the time of day just because they hate each other so much or one side hates the other side so much, which is always sad when you see that in family law cases. We see it a lot. It's always sad when you see that. It's dangerous when you have that with a child with special needs. Mom goes and talks to the doctor. The doctor says your child has this special need and dad can't get past his anger of mom and says, well, you're doing this somehow. And so I'm not only going to ignore the doctor, I'm going to take affirmative steps to put this child in danger. So those are the extremes, right? It's, It's the extreme of it's made up and used for whatever horrible, nefarious purpose, consciously or subconsciously. Uh, on the other extreme, it's really real and really dangerous. You have a parent not taking it seriously. And then a million cases in between. It just goes back to, uh, we sound like a broken record on the podcast, but it really is a spectrum and it depends. And every single family is unique. And I know this has been your experience, Brian. I think all the judges that we practice in front of, I think, try really hard to come up with a solution for each family, special needs or not. They try to not just cookie cutter every single family, although most families do fit into kind of standard orders. But particularly whenever we have children with special needs, I see our our judges work really hard. I'm not saying they 100% get it right all the time. We're all human. I see them trying to make it work. If there's good lawyers who are presenting the information to them and explaining to them kind of how this unique situation affects the child is going to affect this this family moving forward. Yeah, I agree. That's one of the reasons we practice statewide is that, you know, there's 254 counties in Texas, so 254 different family law systems. But I agree with you. I've, I've been very, very positive in my experiences with both the judges and juries and really attempting their best to figure out what's best for what's often a very tragic, conflict-ridden a sad situation. And um, so, but lawyers matter. Jeez, it, it is true what you're saying about, I mean, a lot of lawyers that don't know the procedure or the evidence rules and to expect them to also know uh, about some disability that they have no experience with is probably asking a lot for most of these lawyers, but not something we put up with in this firm. So. Yeah. Well, and I guess on the positive side and on the positive side, and there's other stuff we'll talk about with special needs kids in, in this series with support and financial considerations in it. But ending on a positive, um, they're really rewarding cases, just like raising a child with a special needs. Raising a child with a special needs is a challenge. It's daily work. It's emotional. It's difficult. But it's one of the most rewarding things in the world. And frankly, litigating these cases or resolving them or or whatever, whatever our role is. But representing families with children with special needs is a really rewarding part of our practice. And and I know you and I and the associates that work with us really enjoy these cases. Not easy. They're not easy cases, but they really are rewarding. So we can end with that positive note. And, you know, we'll be doing more on uh, this series for representing families with children with special needs. 
If you've liked what you heard today, as always, do us a favor and leave a review. We really appreciate feedback. It helps us better the podcast. It helps us come up with topics. So you can always email us at podcast at waltersgilbreth.com. We love feedback. We love reviews. I'm Jake Gilbreth, and I'm here with Brian Walters, and we appreciate y'all listening. For information about the topics covered in today's episode and more, you can visit our website at waltersgilbreth.com. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of For Better, Worse, or Divorce, where we post new episodes every first and third Wednesday. Do you have a topic you want discussed or a question for our hosts? Email us at podcast at waltersgilbreth.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time.